Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Gregory Afinagenov, who's Assistant Professor of Imperial Russian History at Georgetown University, and he'll be talking about his new book, Spies and Scholars, Chinese Secrets and Imperial Russia's Quest for World Power, which was published in 2020 by Harvard University Press. Spying and the accumulation of mutual knowledge are, of course, perennial features of relations between states and empires, even if the ways in which these have been carried out have changed considerably over time. Long before the Cold War with its bugs and briefcases, or the hacking and cyber espionage of today, the age of European imperial expansion was a time when these activities were critically important, not least in undergirding a rapidly intensifying encounter between Europe and Asia at large. As Gregory Afinagenov shows us in Spies and Scholars, Russia sat both geographically and conceptually in the middle of all of this, as it developed its own knowledge of Qing-era China and interacted with circulations and regimes of information across two continents. This beautifully written book takes us from the eastward forays of 17th century Muscovy and the frontier texts which emerged from exploratory encounters with China through the formalization of institutions and learning under Peter the Great, right up to 19th century reassertions of Russian power in Asia, which were based in part on claims to a special understanding of China developed over centuries. Drawing on vast troves of multilingual sources, including notably Manchu-language Qing documentation, Afinagenov tells a tale of incredible nuance and depth, transporting us via months-long cross-continental caravans into the seedy Beijing cells of inebriated Orthodox missionaries to inter-imperial clashes in Inner Asia and the North Pacific, and bringing to light in the process the multi-layered composition and curious lacunae in Russian knowledge of China as the former came to dominate northern Eurasia. Perhaps most valuable of all, this book shows us what a richly textured foundation underlay today's Sino-Russian relations and indeed Eurasian affairs at large. But the author is here to tell us a lot more about all of this and other things, I'm sure. So I'll say, Gregory Afinagenov, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm wonderful, it's a, wonderful to be here. Great to have you too. And uh, I think uh, it's a subject that is particularly close to my own heart. So looking forward to talking about it greatly. Um, but uh, perhaps before I do uh, begin asking you about the book, could I ask you about yourself a little and uh, what your background is and how you became interested in uh, Russian imperial history and encounters with China and these sorts of things? Yeah. Um, so I actually started out uh, as an 18th century historian, sort of a Dizuitiamist uh, writ large. And I happened to be from Russia originally, but for a long time, I sort of resisted that identity as a, as a historian until somebody told me, well, you have the language, so you might as well study it. Um, and I arrived in grad school thinking, well, okay, I'm going to start to study knowledge in Imperial Russia, and I'm going to try to take some kind of 
enlightenment perspective on it. And I looked around and I saw that there was uh, that there wasn't as much to do with it. And of course, there's lots of good scholarship on that now. But I I found myself really at a loss about material and things that I found compelling until I went to the archives and and it turned out that there was this incredible wealth of material. The first thing I stumbled on was a giant package of correspondence between professors at the Imperial Academy of Sciences in St. Petersburg and uh, Jesuit missionaries in Beijing. And I thought, I'd never heard anything like this. Um, And I read through them and and started pulling on things. And it turned out that it was connected to this giant sprawling network of, uh, of connections and correspondence that's stretched from Europe to, to Southern China. Um, mm. and, but in general, I think I'm interested in the 18th century, but I, ideas and the interplay between kind of uh, ideas as produced by low-ranking bureaucrats and other people we don't usually think of as producing ideas um, and larger scale grand narratives or conceptual frameworks that that inform the production of knowledge. Um, mm-hmm. So, so in in the projects that I've engaged in today, I think that this is this is one of the ones that really traces that connection very closely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in terms of the book, I mean, this was uh, a development of um, graduate school era work, or, or where did that kind of come from or come into uh, into focus? Uh, yeah, so I did my PhD at, at Harvard. Um, I finished it in 2016, and uh, this was this was my dissertation essentially. Um, although it expands on the dissertation in a number of ways, of course, and um, all the standard things. But uh, yeah, I, I I stumbled on this topic. Uh, yeah, essentially by taking an initial exploratory archive trip to the archive of the Imperial Russian Academy of Sciences, uh, which is the the St. Petersburg branch, which at the time, right now it's being moved to a different location, but at the time, it was this tiny little uh, room in the back of uh, the Kunstkamera Museum in St. Petersburg, which is this bizarre little 18th century nook with uh, all of these preserved fetuses and things. Uh, <laughs> uh, and in the back, and sort of in the back of the building, there's this archive, uh, and the archive contains thousands, millions of pages of documents from 18th century Russia uh, related to all kinds of things, including China, as it turns out. Right, right. No, yeah, I, I wouldn't have guessed actually, having gone through the, uh, the the front halls of that, as you say, quite bizarre place that uh, that these things would be hidden hidden away in the back. But in, in a way, it's nice to know that it's not just um, yeah you know, like skeletons of uh, goats with two heads and, uh, <laughs> uh, and and other such attractions. Um, but in any case, well, that's that's great. Um, I guess now we know something of the genesis, and and you and I guess you may well say a little more about the actual some of the sources as we get into it, but uh, I think we'll start talking about the book now itself. Um, so, I mean, you've given us a little bit of a sense there of your kind of entry into this period of of contact and encounter and exchange of information. Um, but could you kind of give us a bit more of a background of what the relationship between Russia and China was like uh, in very broad terms during the period you focus on in the book? Yeah, so um, essentially I start with the first time that Russia becomes aware of the existence of, uh, of a large political entity somewhere in the southeast of, its, of Siberia. Uh, and I end with 1860, which is the Treaty of, the Treaty of Beijing, which signs away uh, large chunks of territory in, the, in what is now the Russian Far East. Um, and I do that very deliberately because most people tend to focus on, this, on the post-1860 period because that's when things really heat up. You have the 
you know, the uh, creation of Harbin, you have the Sino, uh, the, the Russo-Japanese War, you have all of these very active, the Boxer Rebellion, of course, um, all of these very direct confrontations between Russian imperialists and China. Um, and what I'm interested in this is the earlier period in which actually there's something of what might be called an uneasy stalemate, because what happens is in, in the course of the late 17th century, and especially in the 1780s, um, Qing armies, uh, because Manchuria is, of course, the um, ancestral home of the Qing dynasty, it's, it's uh, a very important place for the Qing dynasty to protect uh, in the 17th century. And so uh, the, when the Russians are trying to, they're, they're moving, of course, over the course of the 17th century, gradually eastward uh, through Siberia to the Pacific. And then they're trying to, in, to go into Manchuria to colonize what they call Daurya, uh, which is uh, northern Manchuria across the Amur. Um, and Qing troops defeat them uh, and drive them out, essentially, of that, of that region. Um, and the Muscovite state signs a treaty, the Treaty of Nerchinsk, that uh, more or less delimits the border for the next 200 years. And in fact, large chunks of the border are still the, the same today. Um, and, and so what ends up happening is that Russian expansionist ambitions in that region are frustrated. And the Russians are in this position then of have, and of course, the dreams don't go away. And, and there's lots of mythology about what that territory was like that the Qing chased them out of. Mm. And, you know, they're thinking about it as maybe like the breadbasket of Siberia, that this is a place where grain grows easily and doesn't have to be uh, eked out of the ground by starving peasants and so forth. Um, uh, which, you know, I mean, the subsequent uh, <laughs> Russian colonization doesn't prove to be nearly as fruitful uh, as it turns out in the, in the 19th century. But, um, but so the Russians are always trying to find ways of getting around the basic geopolitical impasse that they're in, in that region. Uh, and it turns out that intelligence gathering and the production of knowledge is a key lever that they're trying to use to exploit that. So where most studies of, uh, and I can get into this a little bit later, uh, but most studies that focus on European Orientalism or, or various features of the alliance between knowledge and imperialism, they focus on really situations where the colonizing power very much had the upper hand militarily. And my book is about a period in which that was absolutely not the case. And in fact, uh, the Russians were terrified of what would happen if the Qing decided to invade them. Uh, and knowledge becomes... Uh, a, an attempt to compensate for coercive weakness rather than uh, a handmaiden to coercive power. Right, right. And, and I mean, actually, this was a question I was sort of thinking of getting onto a bit later, but I wonder if I could just ask it now. I mean, in terms of the effects of this early defeat of uh, Russia by the Qing, um, it was somewhere far away from the center that this happened and uh, in, in some ways i guess what you document is an increasing familiarization with what is actually going on in that region and, and in china at large uh, but was it something that really did shake i guess confidence uh, in russian expansion to the core at that time was it was it a sort of perennial source of of, of anxiety and paranoia for uh, russian sort of states people moving forward from then um I don't necessarily think it shook Russian confidence per se. I mean, you have to think about Muscovy as a, it's a very, it's a state with a very limited bureaucracy. Uh, and as it expands further and further into Siberia, it finds itself in control of all of these territories and populations that it still has to learn how to govern. And so losing some front, some frontier territory on the far side of it is not necessarily the worst thing that's ever happened because uh, one of the things that, Russia finds is that it wants more active commercial relations with China, and it finds that, that it's 
that having this conflict on the border is incompatible with the development of those. So as, the, as far as the Muscovite state is concerned, uh, it was a pretty good trade because they lost some territory that they didn't really care about that much at the time. And they gained uh, permission to trade furs in Beijing, which ended up being very profitable. Or, mm. um, I mean, that's complicated, but we can get into it later. Um, but uh, what actually happens is later in the 18th century, when the Russians are much more concerned about further territorial expansion, especially in the age of uh, Elizabeth and Catherine, uh, the Catherine the Great, um, you you find that there's a lot more wistfulness about the missed opportunities represented by that defeat than there was actually at the time. Mm, mm, I see. Yeah. So it's something that kind of is continually processed in the uh, ensuing decades and centuries. And I think that is something that you, you document. But during that kind of sweep of time that you've outlined there as the focus of the book, how did Russia's approach um, relate or, or, or compare to other European powers and what makes it interesting and distinct? Um, yeah, so other European powers, so it's interesting. I mean, the way that we look at the 17th century in particular is a period in which Russia, or the early 18th century, is a period when Russia is Europe, Europeanizing, Westernizing, so it's always learning from the West and sort of cast in this role of pupil. Uh, but in this early era, uh, the amount of sources that Westerners have for information about China is actually quite limited. And so... So both Russia and China are in, uh, and, and other Western powers, I mean, are engaged in a process of trying to figure out what's happening there, what what makes the Qing state tick. And uh, Russian sources end up being quite valuable for that. Other European powers have the, East, for example, the East India Company, which is a, a kind of an autonomous commercial organization that's very um, interested in obtaining local knowledge in order to maximize its profits. And in Siberia, you have something similar. You have... Um, relatively independent entrepreneurs on a much smaller scale, they're not quite independent in the sense that they're benefiting from, of course, the patronage of the Tsar, uh, but they're kind of allowed to see what what they can get out of the local population in terms of fur tribute and so on. But when it comes to relations with China, especially in the 18th century, it very quickly becomes a matter of state interest. And so the state mm-hmm. monopolizes the commerce with China. It creates a, um, a an official trade caravan that whose employees are all funded uh, by the Russian state. Um, and so it's a, so on the one hand, it's a much more statist entity uh, and it's a much more statist approach, but it's also um, something that's uh, very much more conscious of the immediate dangers and risks involved in the relationship with China, right? Because neither Britain nor France nor any of the other powers share a land border uh, with China, and so their relations are necessarily at a much greater remove. And in fact, Russia has a much much greater access to diplomacy with the Qing than any European state up until the 19th century, which has become a, actually a, an object of great jealousy for, for the British, for example. Um, mm, mm. Even though that diplomacy doesn't always lead to very positive results. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, that kind of land contact is, I guess, the most obvious prima facie kind of indication of a distinction in the sort or a clue as to what distinctions there might be in the relationship as opposed to a maritime relationship between say France and Britain and and China um, which I guess can have positives and negatives but as far as that process of familiarization that that you're talking about here is concerned I mean what role does the fact that there is this land space in between the two and there are people living in that land 
play in that in that familiarization. So you know, it's not just such a sudden encounter of uh, British or French sailors turning up on Chinese shores. It's something where there are lots of intermediaries potentially and people in the middle. What role did they play in the kind of uh, mediation of this encounter? Yeah, it's actually a quite significant role because uh, especially, so in the 17th century, for example, you have uh, the the Muscovite state is um, not capable really of using its own people to investigate conditions in Siberia or inner Asia writ large. And so it relies on the role of uh, these Bukharans who are um, essentially a transnational diaspora of merchants uh, centered on uh, the Central Asian Hanate of Bukhara, but who trade really uh, all over Eurasia. And uh, these Bukharans not only lead trade caravans, for example, but they also provide information to the Russian state. They they help to facilitate negotiations by working behind the scenes. Um, But you also have uh, the role of frontier peoples like the Mongols, the Buryats, the Evenki, uh, who... Uh, whose loyalties, on the one hand, uh, the Qing exercise a very powerful uh, pull on these populations because uh, the Buryats and Mongols, for example, are are Buddhist, of course, and the Qing control begin to control Tibet in this period. They they begin to claim the mantle of Great Han in a way that uh, is very appealing to the elites of those societies. Uh, yeah. But at the same time, the Russians are conscious that frontier populations in the Qing Empire are often very exploited. Uh, because they're made to bear the brunt of military conflict, uh, for example, in the campaign against the Jungars that culminates in the 1750s. And so the Russians are always thinking, well, how do we persuade these frontier populations to defect from the Qing and come over to us? And this becomes a major axis of Russian policy, uh, especially in the 1740s and 50s, because the goal begins to infiltrate translators and Mongol speakers into these societies and try to convince them that, look, uh, you have a choice between the Qing and us, and we're going to treat you a lot better. And there, there is, and this becomes a, a very serious problem for the Qing, who try to lock down the borders and prevent the Russians from, have, from being able to do this. And sort of the, the culminating moment of all this, uh, it, actually all of these efforts essentially end in Russian failure. Uh, and the culminating moment of that is comes in 1771, when the entire where half the population of the Kalmyks, who are a, a Buddhist people um, in the northern part of the Caspian Sea, they uh, stage this massive migration into Qing territory, uh, in part because of various conditions like starvation and colonization and so forth, but also because of the of ongoing contacts between the Qing and uh, Buryat leaders, uh, or or rather, or and and uh, Kalmyk leaders. Rather, the Kalmyks. Uh, are full of these uh, refugees from the Jungar conquest who want to come back to their ancestral pastures. So essentially, instead of being able to convert all of these frontier peoples, the Russians lose to some 200, 300,000 of them uh, in, a, in a direct defection that goes for thousands of miles and uh, is absolutely devastating to the Russian frontier. Mm, mm. So in terms of the kind of centers of power or, or uh, outposts, I guess, that Russians were establishing along the way and uh, amongst these people in order to, uh, as you say, attempt to win some of them over and so on. To what extent did these become places where uh, knowledge was produced and where, I guess, some of this espionage or, or, or you know, knowledge gathering was actually occurring? And, and how did knowledge produced on the frontier at nodes of contact between Russia and, uh, and, and the Qing relate to 
thinking uh, at the center and, and knowledge produced, I guess, way back west in uh, kind of the, yeah, the, the, the St. Petersburg and the, the core areas of uh, historical Muscovy and Russia. Yeah. Uh, so especially one of the things I talk about in part three of the book is this, um, is the creation of this intelligence network that's centered on uh, the town of Selenginsk, which is just across the, the Baikal from Irkutsk. Um, well, it's not just across, but it's, it's close to it. Uh, and Selenginsk, which is a city that most people have never heard of, uh, becomes the central node in a in this Russian network stretching uh, through northern Mongolia, Manch- uh, parts of Manchuria, um, and it is in regular contact with uh, people in Xinjiang and in, in uh, modern-day northern Kazakhstan. And so uh, this becomes this kind of site where local knowledge, and produced by people, for example, like Vasily Gumnov, who is a longtime state servitor, who's like a frontier official, and has spoken Mongol since he was a child, uh, and serves on that frontier for about 40 or 50 years. And over the course of that time, he makes all of these very direct contacts that are very well documented in archives about how uh, he's you know, met up with such and such a Qing official and extracted such and such information from him in exchange for furs, for example. And all of this, this information gets sucked into the office of Rafael Yakobi, who is the, common, the commandant of um, the commandant of Selenginsk at this time. And Yakobi is processing all this information into extracts, which he then sends back to St. Petersburg. And it's a, it's a very situated form of knowledge in the sense that it's, it draws on all of these very deep connections, uh, in part facilitated by the fact that both Buryats, who are Russian subjects, and Mongols, who are Qing subjects, are Buddhists. And so religious exchanges provide an, an opportunity to extract information. Uh, but over the course of the 18th century, and especially towards the late 18th century, uh, the Russians become far more interested in what's happening in St. Peter, in well, in St. Petersburg, but also in London and Paris. In other words, the competing centers of imperial rule than what's actually happening on the frontier. And you get this bizarre thing, for example, in the early 19th century when there's an expedition that's sent, and the guy who's assigned to lead it is this aristocratic emigre, who's uh, uh, you know uh, very proud of of the training that he's received. And he goes to the frontier and he says, oh, look, all of this in- intelligence that they've been gathering is worthless. Um, what we really do have to do is remodel this so that it produces actually useful information. That, of course, does not happen because he is operating from categories that he, he gained entirely on the diplomatic service in the West. So, mm-hmm. so there's this constant push and pull between the center and the periphery where the center is always operating within its ideas of who its rivals are and who what counts as legitimate knowledge, which is, in fact, one of the main axes in which the book turns is, is how do you decide what knowledge is good and what knowledge is, is not worth taking seriously. Mm, mm. Well, that takes us quite neatly on, I guess, to the question of how the book as a whole is framed, at least uh, theoretically, and, and what you're kind of doing with uh, ideas of knowledge produced, as you said right earlier at the beginning, um, by kind of local of, uh, officials or um, uh, functionaries on the frontier and then people back in the uh, in the capitals and in, in I guess, more uh, refined halls of uh, academies and such institutions. So what is the knowledge regime? You, you use this term knowledge regime to describe uh, this, uh, I guess, accumulation of information and the relationships between different forms and genres. Uh, what uh, do you understand by that term, and, uh, and and how does it relate to what's in the book? 
yeah. So a knowledge regime, it, it's a, it's kind of a, it sounds Foucauldian, but I've actually gotten it from some sociologists. Um, and essentially, the 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 way that it's used in the original uh, context uh, is, you can look at the United States, for example, which has, uh, and how do policymakers in in the United States make decisions? Well, uh, they need they need some kind of knowledge to make those decisions. And how do they figure out what that knowledge is? There's a knowledge regime, in other words, a configuration of institutions that is endowed with the credibility needed to provide input to policymakers, and of course, knowledge regimes differ across countries. Think tanks are much more important in the U.S. Uh, and in Germany, you have foundations connected to political parties, uh, things like that, right? And of course, uh, the, the institutional framework has an impact on the kinds of knowledge that's produced, on the kinds of recommendations that are produced, but also on ideas of expertise, on ideas of uh, essentially what is bad knowledge as well. And so... I use this concept to track the evolution of Russian intelligence and knowledge producing institutions because the book is called Spies and Scholars because it's concerned with the relationship between academic knowledge, what we think of as, as knowledge most of the time that we encounter it as scholars or historians, uh, and bureaucratic knowledge or intelligence or other kinds of knowledge that are much more localized and much less legible as knowledge to us. And so it tracks the evolution so broadly speaking, uh, by the end of the book, what emerges is this autonomous, relatively autonomous uh, intellectual structure within the Academy of Sciences that's focused on all of the classic sinological questions uh, and addressing them to China. Uh, in other words, uh, is Buddha the same? Is is Buddha actually uh, the same as Jesus? Which was like a, a very um, hotly debated 18th, late 18th century sinological question. Uh, the production of uh, glossaries and um, grammars and so forth, all of these classic questions, how does that emerge out of a, a very different world where overwhelmingly what people were concerned about was the advancement of Russian uh, dominance, essentially, in the region. And the and so the knowledge regime, and you can compare, for example, the knowledge regime of the, of the mid-18th century when the Petrine reforms create this, on the one hand, this bureaucratic structure for creating secret intelligence. Uh, centered on the College of Foreign Affairs, which is sort of like the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Uh, and then on the other hand, this public-facing infrastructure uh, centered on the Academy of Sciences. It turns out that the Academy of Sciences in the 18th century is very much pushed to the background uh, because the kinds of people that are producing China-related knowledge there are not high status. They're sort of clerks. And mm -hmm. so whereas those same types of individuals in the 19th century would be allowed to, to make careers, and in fact, many of them become quite successful. In the 18th century, they end up languishing and are not even allowed to, for example, engage in correspondence with people, with other specialists in Europe, even though they have as much uh, qualification to do so as, as any European scholar at the time. Hmm. So, so, and so for me, knowledge regimes are about competing institutions. They're not like, many people think of knowledge as the state is trying to make things legible. It's trying to project an agenda of modernist rationality onto a chaotic world. That's one sort of framework. And another framework is there's these like intellectual networks and people correspond with one another, but there's not really a center. Um, and to me, the knowledge regime sort of synthesizes both approaches in that it's the state trying to make sense of, of this geopolitical problem, which is the existence of China, but it's trying to do so not directly, but through these competing institutions that it's only indirectly able to reform or control or shape. Mm. 
Well, I think that's a, a, a kind of fascinating paradigm through which to approach this encounter, which in a, in a way I think reflects a lot of the uh, shifts and the, the ambiguities and the things that were indeed unclear to people involved in the endeavour at the time. Um, it's, it's a book which I think as a result has enough space in it to, to really uh, dance between and, and, and delve into these kinds of uh, potential gaps in knowledge and, and, and not think all the time through some kind of I, I guess, as you say, very top-down framework of the state imposing its will or its its sort of paradigmatic understanding of the world on on uh, on new territories or new people or other matters. Um, so I, I say that's a real strength of the book as a as a whole. But it also, I guess, makes me wonder how on earth you actually went about getting the information and deciding what the information was. I mean, how does one triage? Uh, archival documents uh, whether they're in the back room of the Kunstkammer or not uh, and deciding whether or not these things were meant to be secret at the time and and who they were produced by and for um could you say something about the actual i guess research process and and, and archival delving that went into all of this huh. yeah um this is it was an interesting problem because for the entire time that I was doing the research for this book, almost the entire time, except for the very end, um, the the main archive for these kinds of materials, uh, which is the Archive of Foreign Relations of the Russian Empire, uh, was shut down for remodeling. And so I was in this position where I had to come up with how to do research on this topic without having any real access to the core of that material. And that turned out to be a blessing in disguise because that archive in some ways is I visited it since, and it's in some ways very appealing because there's so much stuff there, but it's also very difficult to use because um, you can only request a few documents at a time, and it's uh, and there's so many of them that you can only get through a small amount of material. But it turns out that in all of these other collections, manuscript collections uh, in libraries like the Russian uh, National Library in St. Petersburg, the Russian State Library in Moscow, uh, you have the Russian State Historical Museum, you have various institutes, you have um, the Russian State Archive of Ancient Documents, and also in Moscow. Um, and it turns out that because the Russian state was this bureaucratic apparatus that ran on copies, you had to CC everybody um, hmm. at different moments. Uh, it turns out that there are copies of a lot of things. Um, and I was able to use the process of tracing of copies and figuring out, uh, you know, people's handwriting uh, to trace this this infrastructure. And you could see often secret documents are just marked secret, uh, but you could also kind of see uh, who they were meant to be addressed to, right? Sometimes they're clearly meant to be addressed to uh, the empress and her advisors, and sometimes uh, they're meant to be for, not for public consumption usually, but like for the consumption of a, of a broader range of educated uh, people. Um, so it ends up being a very heterogeneous process, and, and I also went beyond Russia. I did some work in London and Paris, a little bit in Belgium as well. Um, and the, and so there was, there was a great deal of kind of cobbling together involved, but, uh, there, the, the key thing was finding particular institutional repositories in particular places. For example, uh, there's a collection at, at the Russian state archive of ancient documents, uh, which deals with the entire period from 1740 to roughly 1770, uh, and contains hundreds of documents on the frontier. And, and individual documents can range from six pages to literally a thousand pages. Um, and so, and of course I didn't look at every single one because that would have been impossible, but it turned out that there was just such an incredibly rich 
collection that I was able to trace from week to week the kinds of intelligence reports that were being sent back from the frontier, for example. And I was able to trace the decline of that uh, in the at the tail end of that era. Um, so, so really, it was a lot of luck and a lot of improvisation and a lot of, uh, well, I'm just going to visit this collection because I have a hunch that it might have something interesting. Uh, and of course, I also used quite a bit of work by Russian and Soviet scholars who um, are often very well aware of these collections. Um, and so I was able to sort of go back over their, their footsteps and find more things that maybe they all didn't always turn up. Um, that was also incredibly useful for me. Mm-hmm. And actually, you reflect uh, towards the end of the book on, I guess, some of the layers of interpretation and uh uh, yeah, diggings of of previous generations that have turned up both various documents and I guess seen them through various um, uh, theoretical or or indeed ideological prisms. Um, and I think that kind of sense of the life of these documents and the life of this knowledge in the intervening decades and centuries is another really interesting dimension that that you bring out and, and enriches even further our understanding of what these things were and and, and how they kind of inform broader. Uh, canvases of knowledge um, but we'll jump in then perhaps to the actual kind of meat of the book uh, which is divided into uh, four different parts I mean it runs broadly chronologically but there's a lot of um, I guess inevitable uh, back and forth and, and overlap uh, between them and, uh, and and of course recurrent themes throughout um, but part one uh, takes us into this sort of uh, Muscovite era which you um, have already alluded to a little bit um, and I guess it takes us in to, to a world of texts which maybe seem furthest or most difficult to compare directly to things that you know uh, we see today. I mean, if, if not, then you can correct me on that. But the kind of documents that were produced on the frontier or about the frontier at this time, I think, uh, are particularly interesting in, in, in that uh, they have an interesting relationship with authorship and, and so on. So could you say something about uh, what you call these Muscovite hybrid texts? Uh, what kind of information and, and documentation was being produced during these early years of encounter between uh, Russia and the Qing. Yeah. Um, so for me, the, the, the animating spirit of part one is on the, on the, on the one hand, the, the way that the Muscovite bureaucracy tries to understand what it's gotten itself into over on the east side of the, of the territory that, that we think of as Siberia and the Far East. And then on the other hand, how Europeans understand what the Muscovites are doing and try to learn from it. So, and the, the hybrid text thing, um, I guess the, the way to start is to say that Muscovy doesn't really have a literary or authorship culture in the way that we understand it today. In other words, because there are effectively no secular printing presses, there are just a handful of secular books printed. And there was a, uh, there was a, a limited degree to which there were psych- clerical intellectuals who, who had identities as, uh, as writers. But for the most part, most of the documents that you, you run into don't have a name attached. And they're not like there's not an infrastructure of book reviews or bookstores or whatever. So, so that means that you have this, this whole world of texts that are, you open the book and the text starts and then you read through and then the text ends. And there's no like preface, there's, nothing, there's no marketing material because it's not addressed to any particular reading public of which there was virtually none. Um, so... In, the, in that context, what happens is the Muscovites cobble together these uh, these texts about uh, Inner Asia and China that essentially draw in all kinds of material, often just copied directly. So one of the books that I talk about is uh, Nicolae Spafari's 
uh, book which is called Description of uh, of Asia, but is really a, a, a book about China. And about 85% of that book is a direct translation slash ripoff of um, uh, an earlier text by the Jesuit Martino Martini. Um, but then another part of that book is comes from his own direct experience uh, in China because he was an ambassador there. And another part of it comes from is taken from interviews with local Cossacks on the ground. Um, and so, so you have this like very heterogeneous text, which is in part original Russian material, in part Latin, in part local, uh, in part clearly also draws on inter-Asian informants. And, and that's, the, that's the norm, that's not the exception, because what the Moscow state is trying to do is to get every bit of information that it can on this new uh, landscape that it's trying to confront. Uh, and people like the Buharan traders that I mentioned before become a very key source of information here. Mm. So then the other aspect of this part then is what happens when the Europeans try to figure out what the Russians are doing. And it turns out that Russia is a major uh, source of, is a major object of interest for European, both uh, officials and intellectuals, because it has access to Tartary, uh, Northern China, in a way that others do not. And so there's all these efforts at espionage, efforts to figure out, figuring out what Russia is up to on its northern border. So uh, you have, for example, Philippe Avril, who is a, a Jesuit uh, who tries to, to travel to China through Russia. Uh, he's not a- allowed to do so. But um, and, you know, the Russians interrogate him because they think he's a spy and he's, you know, he acts very outraged about this. But then you read the book and it turns out that he kind of is a spy because he reproduces some internal Muscovite documents about about how to get to China. Um, and so so it's a very interesting dynamic because you, you see this all over the place. And um, and there are, in fact, some of the earliest Russian diplomatic reports about their embassies uh, to China, one of them uh, written in 1618-19 and one of them uh, in the 1650s, uh, they are read, of course, in bureaucratic bodies in, in Muscovy, but by a very small number of people. But then they get acquired by European intellectuals, such as Nicholas Wittsen, uh, who is a, a famous Dutch intellectual from this period, and translated into German and English and French. And uh, it turns out that they have a much bigger audience in Europe, just as a matter, as a direct result of the fact that, that Europe at this point has a print culture and the sort of republic of letters, and Russia does not. So it's, it's this curious thing where the internal documents of the Moscow state become part of the of the growing body of knowledge related to China um, that Europe begins to develop in the 17th century. Hmm. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating to think about that, having uh, those texts having a life, perhaps even unbeknownst to a lot of the people involved in their production and, uh, and, and I guess, uh, early readership within Muscovy uh, off in the West or in, in, in Western Europe, yeah, that they're circulating in much higher volume um, and uh, these these uh, kind of cobbled together bits and pieces are suddenly you know, magnified, uh, perhaps uh, well beyond what anyone would have imagined. Um, so that's that's yeah, that's really a really fascinating, uh, just a I guess story about about what was going on at the time. Um, but as far as what these texts were supposed to do for Muscovy, I guess uh, you outline and 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 go into some detail on how it was a part of a sort of diplo- diplomacy and trade focused. Uh, relationship with China too, um, and moving into part two as part of the kind of formalization and uh, the Petrine reforms, which you've mentioned already, um, these things became a little more institutionalized and, I guess, regularized uh, as part of a, 
a state which was trying to do some different things from what Muscovy was doing. So could you say something about the kind of institutions that emerged uh, during the 18th century and, and how they changed what sort of knowledge was circulating? Uh, yeah, so Peter, uh, as he was implementing, uh, of course, his, his famous set of reforms, and that's a much bigger topic than, than we can get into here, but uh, one of the things that he was concerned with is uh, shaping the nature of information. And of course, he created uh, a newspaper, he created printing presses that put out secular books. Um, but he also, what I argue, is institutionalized the distinction between uh, secrecy and publicity in a way that had not been the case previously. So in Muscovy, you kind of assumed that people who are going to be reading your stuff were going to be people who are allowed to read it because there's no other way they could get access to it. But under Peter, you have the development of, of the College of Foreign Affairs, which is intended to be the storehouse of any kind of secret intelligence information, not just from China, of course, but from every foreign country. It had translators whose job it was to constantly be translating this kind of material and serve as sort of local experts. Uh, but also through the creation of the, of the Academy of Sciences, uh, the dissemination of other kinds of material to the public. And you have the, the acknowledgement of the disti distinction for the first time in various legislative acts from the 1720s and 30s. Um, of course, that P Peter the Great dies, but, but his successors carry on this project. And so the bureaucratization of, the, uh, of implemented through the College of Foreign Affairs means that knowledge ceases increasingly to be produced by these non-Russian intermediaries like Jesuits or Bukharin, and increasingly becomes entrusted to low-level clerks and bureaucrats who are trained in specific uh, languages in particular, but also uh, in the specific roles for which, to which they're assigned. Um, and this creates this sort of paradox, which is that the Russian state is always trying to train these people, but it doesn't always know how to use them effectively, and it doesn't allow them much latitude to, de to decide for themselves how they want to be used. So uh, you have all kinds of people who learn and study Chinese over the course of the 18th century who either completely disappear from the historical record or are recorded doing these kinds of medial, menial jobs that don't use their training at all, uh, because it turned out that there wasn't really that much um, use for them. Uh, but one of the key institutions that emerges is the Russian Ecclesiastical Mission, which is, uh, it's a... It, it's this weird result of a collision between the Qing state's desire to be multi-religious and thus to provide a captive population of Russians that they had captured in the 1680s with a uh, orthodox hierarchy. And it collides with the, with the sort of uh, Petrine state's desire to create bureaucratic training centers for, for people. And so the Russian Ecclesiastical Commission in Beijing functions basically all, all the way up until the Russian Revolution. Uh, and it trains students in Manchu and Chinese, it it, and it provides a home for missionaries. Uh, and these students are expected to sort of learn the languages. They help out at the Qing uh, diplomatic body, the Lifan Yuan, that engages with Russia, translating Russian documents. Uh, but they, they also gather intelligence. They also uh, are expected to act as sort of eyes and ears of the Russian state on the ground. Uh, but again, the conditions at the mission are so bad for the most part that they're not actually able to achieve what they're expected to achieve because they're they're very uh, localized. They they don't have the social role to be able to be autonomous intellectual. And so when they go back to, to St. Petersburg, for example, um, they might work at the Academy of Sciences, but at the Academy of Sciences they're not professors. They're um, they have lower various lower ranks, 
And the professors make much more money than they do. They have much more autonomy. And they essentially, uh, they essentially aggregate to themselves all of the knowledge that these experts produce in Russia because it's a very hierarchical bureaucracy. And then the other kind of key aspect of that Petrine era is the emergence of the Russian trade caravan. Um, and the trade caravan, because for the first half of the 18th century, Russia's main interest in China was as a source of porcelain, rhubarb, uh, which is a, a very valuable medicinal that Russians traded on to Europe, um, porcelain, rhubarb, tea, silk, those kinds of things. Um, the hope was that you could use the trade caravan to gather knowledge, including commercial knowledge. And so unlike these bureaucratic departments, the, the trade caravan becomes the center of all kinds of knowledge gathering. So both about the geography of China, about uh, the military preparations of the Qing, um, but also uh, about methods for making porcelain, methods for making uh, various Chinese liquors, uh, various other forms of, of craft work. Uh, and it also, the caravan also ends up being the, the venue by which a massive correspondence between the Jesuits and the, the Russian professors uh, in St. Petersburg is carried on, which I've already mentioned. So, so you can see that the importance, that what the Russian state values in this period is, is luxury trade. And it's luxury trade that ends up being the institutional nexus for all kinds of intelligence gathering uh, until the middle of the 18th century when things change very radically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I should say that in regards to some of the uh, key, I guess, themes that you've mentioned there and some of the key institutions, indeed, such as the ecclesiastical mission and so on, I, I think the, uh, the book is uh, worth getting hold of uh, alone for the stories of what on earth was going on uh, in the Beijing ecclesiastical mission um, because uh, it was maybe a unique institution, uh, one that set Russia apart from many other European uh, competitors, as you've highlighted already, um, but also one that was unique in its, uh, uh, well, it's just hard to say, but it, it certainly seems uniquely uh, debauched and uh, uh, chaotic in a way which, you know, I think portraying such um, characteristics among people uh, of, of a Russian backgrounds can 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 risk you know playing into uh, to various popular tropes but i think you do it with a uh, a depth and an elegance that makes it uh, incontrovertible that uh, that there was indeed an awful lot of uh, um uh, craziness going on at the ecclesiastical mission so anyway uh buy the book and uh, read that bit at the very least um anyway <laughs> yeah there's a lot of <laughs> it's great it's great um part three uh I, I guess you've already highlighted there that yeah things do start to change mid 18th century and a lot of that surrounds the uh, Qing conquest of Jungaria, I guess what is uh, now uh, northern northern Xinjiang, roughly. Um, so how did that kind of uh, change the relationship, uh, Russia's priorities in the region and, and its perhaps its geographical focus? What did that do um, in, real, in regard to some of what had been uh, kind of being set up as institutions before that? Uh, yeah, so up until the, the middle of the, of the 18th century, uh, Inner Asia was dominated by essentially three major powers. So Russia, the Qing, and then the, the Jungars, who were this uh, confederation of uh, Western Mongols uh, who were Buddhist for the most part and who uh, exercised a pretty significant degree of power and were able to resist uh, Qing attacks on them for, for a long time. And in fact, uh, you know, had a bid to control Mongolia as well, which did not succeed. Uh, and so the Russians benefited for a long time from being the sort of kingmaker role uh, in this region, because uh, the Jungars always asked them to ally 
uh, with them so that they could jointly attack the Qing. And the Qing, of course, wanted to prevent this at all costs. And as a result, a lot of trade concessions, a lot of concessions related to the, to the mission were granted in this effort to appease the Russians and prevent them from getting involved in this conflict. Uh, so there's over the course of the middle of the 18th century, there's a succession crisis in the Jungar Hanate. Um, and as a part of a complicated series of events, the Qing invade uh, and essentially massacre uh, a huge proportion of the Jungar population and send refugees uh, all through Inner Asia, including into Russian territory. And so what this means is that this fundamentally changes the balance of, of power in this region, because suddenly the Russians are in this position where their borderlands, which are still not very, even in the 18th century, Siberia is defended by a very small number of troops. It has a very small population. It can't support a large establishment, whereas the Qing have, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of soldiers. And if the Qing wanted to start a war with Russia, it's, it was certainly not clear to the Russians who would win. Uh, it wasn't clear to them that they, that they wanted to, but it was something that was constantly on their mind. Mm. And uh, so, but at the same time, the sort of conquest of the Jungars creates this zone of frontier instability, uh, stretching all the way from Mongolia and Manchuria all the way to, to what is now Kazakhstan, that the Russians want to take advantage of because a lot of the populations are devastated by disease, devastated by the military costs, the, the costs of the war, and begin to be to chafe under Qing domination. So so the Russians, you know, it's this, there's this like very uh, 80s uh, cliche about the Chinese character uh, for crisis containing opportunity, right? Of course, oh, it's not no. true, but like, but in this case, it definitely ex- <laughs> uh, encapsulates the situation that they're finding themselves in, which is that on the one hand, they want to protect themselves against the Qing invasion while not having a strong military establishment, but on the other hand, they want to take advantage of this instability to expand further, and so they do things like they send in um, intelligence officers across the Xinjiang frontier to try to kind of establish themselves in expand their borders at the expense of what was formerly Jungar territory. They try to persuade the Kazakhs to uh, become Russian subjects, even though they formerly had been, uh, they were actually both Russian and Qing subjects. They had sworn oaths to both of them. Uh, and also to persuade the Mongols to defect. So there's all kinds of processes that suddenly start to motivate the Russian state to take a, uh, take a, a position that's less oriented towards trade and luxury commodities and more towards uh, geopolitical domination in East Asia. And ultimately, the attempt to create a sort of intelligence network that will that protects and expands Russian power without causing uh, military conflict ends up being unsuccessful. There mm-hmm. ultimately is no conflict, but there are multiple close calls. Uh, and even though the Russians have a very successful intelligence network, it turns out that having all this knowledge doesn't really help them that much. Because, for example, there's a, a Russian uh, Russo-Chinese treaty that's being negotiated, Russo-Chinese treaty, in the 17 uh, in 1768, and the Russians have, uh, infiltrate the the Qing negotiators um, and have all of the information about their ongoing internal deliberations during the process. But it turns out that that knowledge doesn't actually put them in any give them any advantages because everything is based around the fact that the Russians don't have enough troops to really uh, make a credible uh, case for expansion. Uh, or be able to resist Qing power if there is a retaliation for anything they do. So, so it's a very ambitious effort, and I'm very interested in the way that it creates specific types of intelligence, which I've already talked about, these extracts. But um, it's also notable because it doesn't succeed. And so then, right. uh, then 
when we, when we move into part four, I'll talk about what happens to that process afterwards. Sure, yeah. I, I, and you kind of already preluded that a little with the reference to uh, changing priorities around, uh, you know, world domination or um, world power, I guess, as it, as it is in the title of the book. Um, and uh, I guess a, a growing uh, competition and a sense of comparison with other uh, European powers who were not, I guess, previously completely irrelevant, but I guess loom larger as this becomes uh, the, the, the relationship between European countries and East Asia becomes one of uh, competition. Um, so, yeah, how did this change again? I guess Russian dynamics and, uh, and what it was what it was trying to do, and whether or not it was succeeding. Uh, so yeah, so in the 1770s, essentially Russia becomes a world power, right? Because in part because of its victory over the Ottomans uh, and the conquest of uh, you know large parts of what is now of now, what is now Ukraine, um, the the dismemberment of Poland, and so forth. And so, as Russia becomes a world power, it, be- it begins to sense itself as competing with the British, uh, in particular the British, but also the French, and then increasingly the Americans once the Americans become independent. And the way that this competition plays out is the Russians become very worried about the North Pacific, because up, up until that point, the Russians had had colonies on the North Pacific, but, but nobody had really gone there except for the Russians, um, and so, or you know, foreigners in Russian employed. So they, they were never particularly worried about foreigners invading them. But suddenly you have things like uh, an East, the Captain Cook, uh, after his death, his crew uh, takes the ship to Kamchatka. And for, that's for the, the first foreign visit to that, to that establishment, which provokes this round of anxiety about whether the British are going to keep coming, as in fact they do. Uh, or later on in the 1790s, you have a, a you know, British vessels that are harassing uh, local indigenous people who are subjects of the Russians. And you have so increasing anxiety about what's going to happen when the Europeans decide to show up and conquer this area. So initially you have this, this turn towards international conspiracies. So there's a, the Russians find out about what the, the McCartney embassy, which is a British attempt to establish relations with the Qing that ends in this famous document that the Qianlong emperor sends to to the British that says, well, we have no need of your country's manufacturers. And that's, of course, a complicated story. Uh, but the Russians are look at what the British are trying to do and are terrified. And they try to plot this, uh, this attempt to send a message to the Qing emperor that's going to say, uh, look, the, look at what the British did in India. We're gonna, they're going to try to do the same thing in China. So you have to ally with us and, uh, you know, protect yourself against these devious English, right? These are, these are classic things. And for the most part, the momentum of that is all in the espionage that the Russians do in places like London uh, and their attempts to project that knowledge eastward. Um, and meanwhile, the inter-Asian context fades out from view completely because the Russians essentially give up on trying to do anything meaningful against the Qing. Instead, the Qing become this sort of football that the Russians use to try to uh, beat the, the British at the game of imperial expansion. Uh, and so in, as Russia becomes a world power and tries to compete with other European powers, Suddenly, academic knowledge and the sort of prestige attached to uh, what we think of as scholarship uh, becomes much more important. And so this is sort of the moment when the when this knowledge regime shifts to something much more recognizably uh, 19th century, because the Russian state begins to fund academic projects for the exploration of China, not just out of a desire to secretly carry on intelligence missions, although we do that as well, but also to sort of show how... Uh, look, we are a European power, and we're like 
using our contacts with China to to bring to European science this the the glory of our imperial uh, state. And essentially, uh, it they, they there's a, a number of false starts that they do, but but ultimately by the middle of the 19th century, the Russians have a credible claim to being uh, to having successfully established themselves as experts on China and inter-Asian culture in a way that even though Russians had equally qualified people a century earlier, none of nobody in Europe essentially knew about them. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a very significant shift in the knowledge regime. And then finally, the, the book kind of ends with the annexation of, of the Russian Far East and the way that the governor of the Russian Far East, uh, Nikolai Muravyov, is able to very deftly manipulate the anxieties of the center and definitely use the politics of knowledge and secrecy within the internal structure of the Russian state to uh, manipulate events in such a way that the, that the region gets annexed directly rather than as a process of indirect imperialism via the Russian American company um, and other commercial establishments that tries to sort of uh, expand uh, without formally annexing territory. Um, so, so it becomes, so this process ultimately culminates in the reconquest of this territory that the Russians lost in the 17th century and ushers in a new era in which Russians become uh, much more powerful in China and much more similar to other European countries uh, in, in that context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think it, it is very significant and it's the, it is the culmination of a, of a long process, as you've outlined, that, that ends the book with Russia being in a position that uh, makes it kind of quite comparable and, as you say, uh, treating China like a football in the manner of uh, other European conquerors. Um, I guess, I mean, there are a million and one other things that we could talk about from this book, but as a sort of, I guess, uh, potentially um, excessively vague question to, to end on, I just wonder, you've already highlighted, you know, that on many occasions uh, over centuries preceding the uh, 1860 Treaty of uh, Beijing and things, uh, authorities in Moscow or St. Petersburg were, you know, f- failing to make use to uh, make use of the documentation and the intelligence that they had, um, at least according to certain, you know, parameters that, that they weren't sort of doing quite as much as they could have done with it. So is this in a way a story of um, a very different kind of polity to other European polities, ultimately not really managing to find a different way of being a an empire or a polity i don't know if that question makes any sense at all but if what we end up with is a, a, a sort of process of gradual uh uh proximity a gradual kind of rapprochement with ways of doing things in western europe then is has russia basically kind of abandoned a sense of being anything different by this point from uh other european countries so yeah i think the way that a lot of people have discussed questions related to this is sort of, um, is Russia by virtue of being a semi quote unquote Asiatic power in some way, uh, different in its relationship to the quote unquote Orient than say the British are. And my answer to that is that whether or not that's true, as far as the Qing Russia and the Qing was concerned, it was irrelevant because the Russians were very much trying to, to follow what they saw as, as, being effective in other con- in other countries' contexts, uh, and uh, it wasn't that they were ever really trying to be a different kind of power. Although they used the ideology of, well, we have these like long-standing relations, and therefore we're a better partner for you than the British are. The British were saying similar things. So it's more that um, 
Russia was more directly faced with the need to confront the limitedness of its power in Siberia and the and its inability to sort of match coercive power to intellectual power. And so it, it was constantly trying to figure out ways around that problem. Uh, and so finally, by the 19th century, it does find a way around that problem and, and does build up its coercive power. But I don't think there was ever any effort to be to be different. And I think that that's an important lesson because ultimately um, this book takes a, a stand around the not necessarily the distinctive the lack of distinctiveness of Russia as an imperial entity, but certainly uh, the commonalities between Russia and other empires around the world. Um, and I think that 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 is certainly something that the people that I write about would have recognized very very strongly. Um, mm-hmm. Mm. Well, there are, there we are a, a fascinating cast and uh, the, the the kind of I guess content of what they got up to and the documents they produced have uh, contributed towards uh, an amazing book, Greg. So thanks so much uh, for talking about it to us today. Um, before we let you go, can I just ask uh, what is it that has come after this uh, after this project? Uh, yeah, uh, and yeah, thank you for for this. But um, my next project is about uh, Russia and the French Revolution, and essentially. The way that foreign emigres, uh, especially French emigres, of course, who end up in Russia, uh, and as well as Russian officials and diplomats and leaders like Paul, especially uh, Tsar Paul, uh, end up creating this idea, this idea of a of a transnational reaction uh, that Russia plays a central role in, and this idea that uh, Russian, for example, you know, Russia's interventions in the in the wars of the French Revolution acquire a kind of a humanitarian aspect because Russia is defending an ideal of aristocracy and legitimism that uh, is that it maybe doesn't have a material stake in, but a sort of ideological stake in. And uh, so far it's in very early stages, but I'm, I'm very curious about, about how you go from Russia is, is an entity that acts in its own interests to Russia represents an entire ideology on the European stage um, and how Foreigners, especially French French uh, aristocrats, participate in the in the process of this creation. Mm, mm. Well, that sounds fascinating, and I guess may uh, take us closer to uh, answering some of the questions we've danced around today about you know uh, what what Russia is and uh, its its um, mysterious destiny. That I, I think it's fair to say Russians themselves also enjoy discussing. Um, so that's brilliant, Greg. Thank you so much. Um, it was great to talk to you today, and uh, I'd really like to thank you again for appearing. Thank you so much. Listeners, thank you too for listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. It's a podcast channel on the New Books Network, and it will be back with you again very soon. Goodbye.